You're listening to Conversations with Shanta, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Our next guest is Tanya Allen, president of the McKnight Foundation. Shonda spoke with Tanya about building and sharing power and how that relates to one's ability to rewrite the rules. Before we begin, I'd like to just highlight one thing And that's the framework in which Tanya uses to compromise and bring people together to create change. It's the 70, 20, and 10 framework. So on tough issues, both sides can agree to about 70% of the solution. And if we can get people to agree in that space, then the other 20% we can negotiate with the understanding that 10% we may not. And that's perfectly okay. As Tanya states, if we are being thoughtful, if we listen, are strategic, we can bridge people. So start with the 70% we can all agree on. Enjoy the show. Tanya Allen, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Shonda. I'm so glad to be here. I'm actually very honored to be interviewed by you um, because I have so much respect for you for all of your work and just the solid presence, like the powerful presence you are in our community. So thank you. Thank you for that. So I think I shared with you that I was sitting on the board of Public Allies, a national board. And for those listening, Public Allies is an AmeriCorps program, but it really has a a particular focus on the fact that everyone can lead from any position for wherever they came from. And so it tends to be the most diverse arm of AmeriCorps programs. I sit on the national board you came to one of their annual meetings and I was in the audience. And I think you were talking about, you were with Michael Smith. Yes. So I think you guys were, must've been talking about the, the boys and men's of color work that was happening, but I was so impressed. And so when I heard you were coming here, I remember just the boldness that you had on that panel. And I'm like, Ooh, I wonder if we ready. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. I remember the um, the conversation. And well, I think we all need a little boldness. Like, I think we I've been focusing and kind of meditating on this week. Like, how do we be bold and courageous in the in these moments and in these times? And so I try to lean into that because I think being genteel, uh, you can be respectful, but being genteel never really gets us to where we need to go. Mm-hmm. Do you did you have to grow into your boldness? No, I don't think I had to grow into. Well, you know, I would. That's not true. Yes, I did. So when I um, used to think of the word power, I would always get really nervous about it. Like, you know, people when they would say, oh, you could do this. Or you could have a lot of power. I, I, it just always made me nervous because I always thought of power as corrupting, mm. like a, that if you had this power that the people would fall or crumble under that. And so eventually I had to just wrestle with this notion that no character makes you crumble, not power. And that we really have to spend our time focusing on how we build power, that we actually spend too little time thinking about how to aggregate, wield, 
build, share power. And so I, I've actually been spending the, the most part of my career trying to think through that. Like, how do you, you know, I'm an old time community organizer. So I really believe in the mantra of like power is organized people and organized money. And that's actually why I went into philanthropy, because I figured there were lots of folks who were trying to organize people. But how many of us were really thinking about how we organize money in a different way? And I also just kind of like have this belief that power, like my fundamental definition of power, power is the ability to rewrite the rules. And a lot of times what I find is that most people who have power don't rewrite the rules. And they don't even think that they have enough power to rewrite them. And so if we can all just step into our power from whatever position we're in, just like um, public, public allies in the way you were talking about that, I really believe it. Like we all have the ability to use our personal power, our institutional power and our collective power to shift the rules. And then the, you know, the downstream of that is good public policy, right? The downstream of that is good solid equitable practices and the downstream of that is making sure that we have innovative approaches um, to our rebuild or our reimagining of our community that anchors it in clean energy so that's how i kind of think about power and that that's how i got to being bold is mm. believing that um it's required it's a requisite for change and so you've been reflecting on the word bold over the last week, what, why, like what led you to reflecting on that? Well, I'm actually doing this 40 day meditation. And one of the words was one of the kind of days has been like, how are we being bold? Like, how are we using our faith to embolden us? Knowing that, you know, depending on, for me, I'm a Christian. So the thinking about like um, the Christian scripture, which tells me that I actually have a safety net, right? Like that I, and I also have a plan, a clear pathway to success. So if I know that those two things exist for me, then why wouldn't I step out and be more bold and be more courageous to be willing to engage in things that some people think are risky, but I might think is necessary. And so that's why I've been thinking a little bit about it and uh, and how I've been thinking about it. I, you know, I, I'm asking because I've been thinking about that myself. There's a lot of things that I've done and then someone will come and say that was so bold and I'm like huh I didn't see it that way at the time like I probably took more risks than I realized I was taking yeah and so I've been thinking about what are the risks that I would take if I knew it you know what I mean like I I don't always think about it in the bold frame so I've been reflecting a lot on that myself on where where do you go next in this work like how much bolder can you be and how much how much can the systems take? Right. Well, I think in a lot of cases, what most people think is bold is probably what you think is necessary. Hmm. So it doesn't feel risky. It feels necessary, right? It feels like a fundamental um, building block to get to change. And I've had people articulate that to me too, like, oh, that's really risky. That's really bold. And I'm like, what am I risking? <laughs> like, what am I risking? 
in the in the grand scheme of things, in most cases, we're not risking that much, right? What people are risking is the ability to be comfortable, is what I would say. So I've always felt like it's really important, you know, to just be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I don't mind pressure. Like I've never mind being in the hot spot. I never been mind being in the pressure cooker if I thought that it would result in changes that that the collective benefits from. And so I think that's part of it. And then you probably also, you know, I think probably two of us have something in common is we get probably a higher uh, risk tolerance and that's okay. Like we need it, we need all kinds. <laughs> I'm definitely a kind. I don't know how you Oh man, it's funny that you sort of thought about organizing money and philanthropy as a place to do that. When I talk to folks, right, like I think the benefit of, of you and I and others from community that come into philanthropy is that we open up what philanthropy can be to communities that haven't always been accessible to it or understood it. And so did you understand philanthropy young? Like, were you exposed to it by your family or how did you come to understand it was like a formal place that you could work? Right. Because I think I understood it from church, but it wasn't called philanthropy. It was like tithing or it was like these other examples of giving. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, like the poor word of philanthropy, like uh, the definitional word of philanthropy is like the love of people. And I think in that case, we're all exposed to it. Like I, I, to your point around being in church, maybe seeing people giving and then how those resources could be aggregated and redistributed. I would just say like my grandmother probably was my first teacher around philanthropy. Didn't have much, but you know, in the middle of the night, if families on her block didn't have heat, they came into her home. She went and got them, brought them in in the middle of the night, made pallets on the floor for them to sleep. Um, you know, she just did all kinds of like things that show like your responsibility to love people. Um, she was a kind of like a neighborhood organizer. And I just learned so many lessons from her. And so I often think about like my strand of my career really go back to the core lessons that she taught me as a child. And um, and so I try to pull that through. Um, and then I think I learned about philanthropy as a career field. Probably when I was in graduate school, I um, met a sister who was um, just amazing and she mentor me and help me understand it. And she helped me understand what uh, grants were and how you go about them. And I always then thought about grants as not like, it's just like, this is the fuel or this is the, the power behind that enables the work, right? So I now kind of like think of philanthropy as I, I don't get all excited about the money. Like what I think about philanthropy is how do we use philanthropy to create an enabling environment so that leaders in our communities can thrive? And so that is what I kind of think of my role as a leader in a philanthropic organization. And this is like, how am I knocking down as many barriers as possible so that people can create stepping stones? No stumbling blocks, only stepping stones. And how do we use the money and the resources to create that 
so that people who are good will have tons of energy and courageousness and boldness actually can run. Like that's, I think, the role of philanthropy. And so, and that's how I think about it. And then the one other thing I would just say, as you uh, ask this question about organizing money, I also think that philanthropy has a responsibility to go outside of its philanthropic circles to organize money. And so I've always just felt like philanthropy is this really interesting entity where, you know, it had it sits on a pot of money. It has a lot of prestige, a lot of power, usually access to really powerful people from the grassroots to the grass tops, right? And they sit in this unique position where lots of people are pouring into, you know, wisdom into them from their partners who are working on the ground to people who are researchers and academics and thought leaders. They're trying to pour into these institutions to influence how you redistribute money. Well, I feel like philanthropy is really an interesting thing that where they can say, we can say, this is our role and we don't go outside of that role. That's everybody else's role. And I think that's the height of privilege. <laughs> like that's the height of privilege that you actually get to decide what you will do and not do as you're in this kind of like change equation. So I've always felt like it is important for us to, to blend the lines uh, between philanthropy and community and that we have to use all of these kinds of privileges and powers that we might have in this, as an institution to really push us to access all these different ways and different people and, and use this influence that we have so that we're actually getting a cross-sector, more durable set of solutions and players involved that isn't just, you know, relying solely on the nonprofit sector. Because I think if you solely rely on the nonprofit sector, I, I feel like that's a, it's a necessary but incomplete formula for change. Yeah, it's like one piece of the, the ecosystem. I, I thought you might go to like organizing government. Yeah, yeah, government too. Government yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, and I, I do believe that. I think you've got to do business. You have to do government. I think you have to get a little messy sometimes. And that to me means like you have to try sometimes to organize people who disagree with you. And I think it's possible. Like you're not going to get people who are on the extremes of either side, right? Like, but I do believe that if we are thoughtful and that if we listen and if we're strategic, we can bridge people. I use a framework in my own mind and the way that I kind of approach work is the 70-20-10 framework, which is essentially on tough issues, regardless of like what side of the aisle you sit on, you agree with about 60 to 70% of what the solution is, right? You might not agree with what the language is. You might not agree with which part of the path you got to do to get there. Um, and so if you can get people to understand that they agree in that space, and then that there might be another 20% where you could actually negotiate, like that's the sweet spot. Like if you can get people to negotiate in that 20%, and then understanding that there's another 10% that you can never mint, you can never bridge. Um, so instead of starting at that 10, let's try and start at 70 and work our way up to 90. And if we get to 70 or we get to 85, whatever that may be, 
it's going to be better for our community. It's going to be more durable. So that's kind of an approach that I've always thought about, like how you bring people together mm -hmm. to create change or how do you help initiate that? And how do you pull these disparate voices together so that people actually see each other's humanity before they start debating the issues? Because I think that's a big part of like what we miss. Bringing people together and bridging. So this is why you decided to come to Minnesota when you when you did. <laughs> I decided to come to Minnesota. I, I don't even know if I decided to come to Minnesota. I just felt so strongly called here in the moment. And I was uh, at the time when I made the decision, I kept calling it a divine interruption <laughs> where it was like I was living a really meaningful life. And my uh, hometown of Detroit and doing really meaningful work. But what I would say is the thing about what happened after George Floyd's murder and the kind of racial reckoning that was happening, you know, for I can't remember the number anymore, but it was like 140 days straight that young people across this globe showed up like 140 days straight. You know, I went to some of the protests with my daughters. And I remember in that moment thinking the young people as they always do, show us the way. So if they can make a sacrifice, and I don't say this like, like I'm sacrificing to be here, but I sacrificed my comfort to come because I knew that I could contribute more. And it felt like in this particular place, um, here we are in kind of like the epicenter, but of like the narrative of what went wrong, but it felt like it could really be the epicenter of a narrative about what went right. And then you look at like the richness of the community, like the richness of the leaders who are here, um, the richness of the nonprofit sector, the richness of the corporate sector. And it just felt like in that moment, like we had this, we, and I say it because I do feel a part of the community now, like we have this moment where we can lead in a different way that actually creates equitable outcomes. And I just wanted to contribute. Like I felt like I was called to contribute, uh, not to lead, not to do, but to just be in partnership with good people. And so that's why I'm in Minnesota and I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I'm super happy that you are here and the opportunities to bridge are plentiful. And we have encountered a number of things where you're either with it or you're not. You're either for defund or you're, you know, and if you're for reform, you're not bold enough. Like there doesn't seem to be room in the public debate. Um, and it's, it could be very easy to stay out of that because the community is not a monolith because, you know, who do you listen to? in these instances. And I'm curious on how you have um, sorted through that. I watch you watching, right? I watch you taking it all in. I watch you doing your homework and due diligence and not jumping too quickly. Yeah. Which is very, very smart. Well, I appreciate that. And I try to, sometimes I do jump too quickly because I can't help it. My mouth gets out there before <laughs> my brain does, but um so I wasn't here when the debate kicked off. So like I missed some of the beginning of it. I only saw it from a distance. Um, but what I 
find is like, I felt like we were debating a solution before we got a common definition of what the problem was. Mm-hmm. Like we all know that we have a broken justice system, a broken policing system. If we can have a series of black men killed unarmed and with impunity, right? Like there's a problem. So we know that part of the problem statement, but like where was the community's capacity and debate to talk about the issue before we were driven to choose between a solution, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where I think we we lost, um, like we, that we lost an opportunity. But I, I would say like, as I watched it unfold, Shonda, um, what I thought a lot about was what happens the day after the election? So either way it went, if you were for reform or if you were for defund, neither one really had a plan, right? Like we didn't really have a plan about how we were going to advance community safety. And it really required a robust process on either side of those options. I think our moment right now is like, what's the process? So if that wasn't the solution, how does our city leaders show up in this moment right now to create space for all of those people to start saying, what does reform look like? The things that were in the defund proposal are because we didn't, because the voters didn't choose to um, adopt it doesn't mean that we don't have to do it, right? Like we can still have a public health approach to policing in our community We could still do innovations in that, but that only is going to happen if our leaders don't see themselves as winners, because you can't win. You're not winning if you literally get this passed or you don't get it passed by 8,000 votes. Like there are no winners in that. Like it means that this issue is still sitting heavily on our chest. There, it means that lots of mamas are still worried in the middle of the night that if their son gets in a car, that he might not come home that night if he does the wrong thing. If he turns his music on too loud, if he decides to buy a bag of Skittles, if he decides, you know, if he has a broken light or if he makes a mistake, like he might not come home. And so we have to like wrestle with that reality. And I would say it's like time for us to build and regrow our civic muscle in this moment. Because if we don't grow it, then as we become more and more diverse as a city, as a region, as a state, then we are going to be less equipped to wrestle with really messy issues where people who have different sets of experiences are going to have different views on it. So that's what I would say, like right now, like what I'm really anxious for and, and, and hopeful for is like, okay, how do we now start talking about what are we going to do? Not how are we going to vote? Right. Because that's what we do is going to be far more important than actually what we voted on, because all of that is dependent again on what you do. So I feel like I almost got emotional as you were talking. Right. And thinking about my son's, you know, I didn't sleep well last night. There's a whole there's a whole thing about them cleaning the streets at 1 a.m. Right. And then I'm just irritated because I'm like, it's the north side. They feel like they can do this. Right. So they're super loud. They're keeping our neighborhood up, right? I actually 
was like, who do I call for noise? Should I be calling 911? Like I had this whole thing in my head, right? And as you were talking, I was thinking about, then you go to school and I have kids in school and I wanna know that they see them, their power, their ability, their humanity, right? They, they encounter employment opportunities and you know my daughter's navigating stuff right now and I'm like, why is she navigating this? Right. I watched um, Colin Kaepernick's thing, you know, on, on Netflix. Right. And watching him navigate. And do people see his talent? What is it? What is it about? And so we're in a city that has so much. And yet these disparities are so clear across the board. And one of the concerns that I've raised, even around the policing to bring it back there, is we can have alternative responses. But we also need to be clear that the alternative responses have not had equitable outcomes either. Mm-hmm. And so how do we really begin to tackle this and think about, to your point, what is at play here? What is at risk? And what's going to be required of us? Because it's not a simple solution. Right. Well, and that's the thing, like, we all know this. And I think on both sides, people know that this is complex and it's hard and so in the face of complexity and, and, and hard things, you don't go to the technical answer, right? Like you got to go to like, you got to go to the adaptive issue, like start unpacking all of this deep stuff that's related to it and unpacking the question, like, how do you reassure people in our city? They are valued that they actually deserve, that you believe that they deserve to be safe. Not because they're going to be a protest, but actually because you see them as a human being, right? Like there are just a lot of things that I think we have to unpack. And I think if we could unpack those things, and it sounds exhausting, like, and it sounds hard and it sounds messy and it is, but yet if we can't find the energy to do that, who are we leaving the task to? Do we want our kids to do it? If our parents didn't do it for us, it's time for us to do it now. And I just think about that saying of like, you know, a hundred years from now, we don't want to be the generation that people say like, what were they doing? What were they thinking back then? Actually, we want to say like, what were they doing and thinking to believe that they actually could bend the arc of the universe or that they could bend the arc of our community's culture or that they could bend the arc of making sure that we had uh, equity across communities throughout Minnesota or that we actually believed we could do a just transition of our economy as we're moving into clean energy? Like those are the kinds of questions I think we should be asking ourselves and I think pushing ourselves to Shonda to be bold like I I don't and I I don't know what the answer is so like I fall into boldness I'm not necessarily thinking I'm an architect of it Um, but what I would just say is like I've been really wrestling with what is the most equitable thing we could do in our city in our region in the twin cities and in the region like you know are we talking about just solving problems or are we talking about architecting the future? I believe in fixers and I believe in builders. I'd like to, I'm more on the builder side. And so part of what I'm thinking through is how do we mobilize builders to think about what the future looks like? How do we think about like how we become the most um, per capita 
the most, the highest number of black, indigenous and people of color businesses in the country. Like, um, you know, what's that big, inspiring, audacious goal that like we go after with vigor? That's what I, I think in this moment it calls for us to like name what that is and like, then let's go after it. If we know that it's a challenge with access to capital, then let's give capital. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> if we know that there's a challenge with getting loans, like let's hold the institutions accountable. Let's ask the institution to hold themselves accountable. Put your numbers out there. Show us how you're going to move. Like all of these commitments you've made, financial institutions, let's now talk about it. Show us with transparency where you're at. If you're saying foundations, McKnight Foundation, you say you're about equity, show us how you're being equitable. I think that we need to build that muscle of demand around it and just get even more courageous at the moment and and, and stop kind of like going into these fights with lecterns. You know, like I always say, people in philanthropy, we go to a fight with a lectern when like, you know, the other people on the other side are like, this is guerrilla warfare. (laughs) So like, I just think we got to get a little more savvy, a little more real and stop being so heady. Mm -hmm. And I know you believe in the power of transforming place Mm -hmm. and community-led solutions. Do you feel confident in philanthropy's ability to do community-led work? I believe in philanthropy's ability to convene people. And I believe in philanthropy's ability to be a part of the community. I don't believe that we need to necessarily lead it. We can sometimes help initiate it. We can help power it so it's more effective. But we really ought to be listening to community. I was uh, over north uh, at a, in a panel last week where somebody asked me, what do you think, your, what's your vision for, for, <laughs> for uh, North Minneapolis? And I'm like, how would I have a vision for North Minneapolis? I was like, I haven't had the people tell me yet. And um, I think they were a little surprised. It's the people who live there have the most to gain or to lose. And I think the problem is, is that we're not giving them enough opportunity to gain, enough opportunity to own, enough opportunity to see how it's going to build a path for them. But it was an interesting question to me because it's like, of course, this has to be community driven. And as we're looking and thinking about like rebuilding the corridors, particularly, you know, after the uprisings. I think what we've been doing is investing in communities, give them the time and the space to rethink and to reimagine what is it that they want to do? Like, is this, this isn't just a moment of like trying to fix what happened and and repair that. Like, that's important. I don't want to underestimate that. But it also is this moment, like, let's just step into it. Let's see if we can make it better. Let's see if we can think through what, what these corridors could look like if they really are thriving and creating opportunity for everyone. And I just feel like that's what we should be doing in this moment is supporting community, helping to enable community. Sometimes we can challenge community, but recognizing that if you challenge, you also have to be challenged. And I think that's the big problem with philanthropy and kind of like being in community work is like we're so fragile around our brands and we're so fragile around criticism and critique because we have good intent. And just because you have good intent doesn't mean you have good impact. 
And so we have to like wrestle with that and own how we show up and how we just, you know, like been problematic. We've done some harm, just like we've done lots of good. And we got to be able to feel comfortable in that paradox. And I think until we do that, we can't really fully help lead, but we surely can enable. Right. Even on the North side, as you were talking, I was thinking about the riots in the 60s that happened on Plymouth and other parts of, of North Minneapolis. And there was sort of this, where do we go from here? And the businesses that were destroyed, you can look at what happened or didn't happen in that case. And then 2011, when the tornado came through and caused quite a bit of destruction on the north side, lots of property damage. You know, I was at a table where it's like, we don't want to just build back, right? Like there was a lot of information about how the tornado came through, the number of people that were renters, the vacancy rates the landlords that were gouging, the way public housing worked. There was a lot of issues that came into play as we were trying to secure the safety of community and then rebuild. And you can argue that there was some fatigue and we, we, we forgot to pay attention or stay attentive. And then now we have another opportunity to not just fix what was destroyed last year, but fix what has not been actualized for for generations of time. You know, I've been in these conversations, I think you may have been in the conversation with the Philanthropic Collective, where we talk about philanthropy coming in in these moments of disaster, and particularly in brown and black communities, indigenous communities after an incident, whether it's, you know, 9-11, Mike Brown, Ferguson, the LA riots, George Floyd, where the whole community says, we have to respond. There's no way that we can't be at the table. It'll be obvious that we're not there, but we don't stick and we don't stay. And we're, and it's not an inclusive process. And I'm watching right now some of the same behavior patterns. I see some that are new that are emerging. And so I guess part of my question, and particularly because you're from Detroit, and I think about the riots that happened in Detroit and the destruction there of that city, is how... Do you hold hope when you've seen incident after incident that hasn't substantially moved forward a community that people have been so interested in? Yeah, well, I think that's right on. So I I would say when you think about like the deep, deep disparities that are here and also like in Detroit and other northern places, it makes me think about that old saying in the South, you can be close, but you can never be equal. In the North, you can be equal, but you can never be close, you know, really referencing like the segregation that happens in the North. And like, um, it's not just geographic segregation, it's economic segregation. But what we do know is this, is that whenever we have these moments in history where we have this opportunity to rethink and do something differently, and then we're forced as a country to face this issue around race, we only have a short window, right? Like usually that window is like seven years before you start to see a rollback. Um, But I think windows and not, I think we know that windows of opportunity open and close a lot faster. So I think that this window is going to close faster. So I think it's an imperative that we really push on people who've made these commitments and hold them accountable to the commitments and to and make sure that businesses and foundations and government 
that this isn't just about like a public statement or and this isn't just about delegating the work to to black or to brown people. We actually need white people to do the work. Now, I'm going to say it again. We need white people to do the work. Of course, we need to include black people and brown people. But these systems that have been constructed have to be deconstructed. And it's really hard to deconstruct something that you didn't create. So I would just say like in this moment, like we have to figure out like how to hold each other accountable. And then I think we got to push ourselves to do things differently. To your point about like what happened uh, over North in terms of home ownership, in terms of the corridor, I think about like the Great Recession. Like, so the Great Recession was essentially in a lot of places, wiped out Black wealth through home ownership. Now you have COVID, which is trying to wipe out Black wealth through business ownership. And so part of like, if we know like the people who are most vulnerable get hit the hardest, then why aren't our solutions actually reparative, not just equal, right? And so I think in this moment, like I keep pushing myself to think about philanthropy in particular. I'm like, we don't have to just, support helping black or helping brown business owners learn how to run a business, how to do their books. We don't need a technical assistance, black business leaders and entrepreneurs. Actually, we can give them equity. Like we literally can give these businesses equity that actually allows them to grow wealth faster. And when they grow wealth faster, then they're going to hire people who live in the neighborhoods. They're going to hire people who look like them. That's how we start closing the wealth gap. What I worry about sometimes with philanthropy and even the nonprofit sector, so I know my nonprofit colleagues are going to get mad at me, but we can't love people out of poverty. That that just doesn't happen, right? Like it, it does not happen. So I'm really anxious to be thinking about like how we conscientiously build wealth, close the gap here, let some people trail us for once, is you what know, I would say. You know, so let's talk about white folks for a minute. So you said that we need white people working towards these issues. We have our white partners, our white sisters and brothers that come to us all the time saying, I want to do something. What can I do? Do you have advice on what does what does working look like? What does it where do you start? What does it look like? What what is the role that they could play to advance yeah. the issues that we're talking about? Well I think a couple things. I think do your own work, learn, read, get a more full understanding and breadth and depth of history. Um, Because I think part of that is the trauma of race in this country, particularly for people of color who've been here for a long time, like we carry that history almost in our DNA, right? Like, Like I know about police brutality, not because I have a son, but I remember my father talking about it. I remember my great, you know, my great grandfather, actually my great grandfather who talked about being um, brutalized in Tennessee, right? Like, so like that trauma, I feel it so deeply in my bones. It's not because I'm worried about being harmed by the police. It's because that trauma is historical and it, it didn't happen with George Floyd or Jamar Clark, right? or Dante, right? Like this, or or whoever, like we can name yeah. hundreds of people, right? So we carry that history in our DNA in a lot of ways. And so, and white folks do too, but they get to ignore it, right? Because they've been the witness, not necessarily um, the victim. 
And so part of what I would say is how do we help? They got to do their work to learn that, to understand the history, have a more complex view of the world that isn't just their view. Then the second thing I would say is like get in proximity, like get close to folks, like invite people to your house. <laughs> like you need not like I'm going to talk to Shonda. Let me call Shonda because I'm wondering about this race question. And then she has to become your tutor. Right. Like, no, how about you invite Shonda and come and understand and meet her children, understand who she is, understand her story so that you respect what she has to contribute, but you see her humanity as you're thinking about solutions. So now this isn't about like, how do I help this person who is, woe is them, like they have significant challenges, but no, how do I be in partnership with folks who have the same American aspirations as I do and who have been denied them in lots of ways or the trauma that they've experienced have prevented them from fully taking advantage of them. And then the final piece is use your personal and professional power. So if you can change the rules with your power, rewrite them. And I'm on um, the General Motors at General Motors, Mayor Barra is trying to become the most inclusive company in the world. And so when she first said that to me, I was thinking like, okay, let's see what this is going to mean. So like I sit on this, I'm one of her advisors on this, on the board that advises her on this. And so She's literally fundamentally using her power to make sure every decision in the hiring process, every decision in the promotion process, every decision in the decision process is being um, that they are actually interrogating and removing bias and being transparent about it. Like that's using your power to rewrite the rules. So now if she just said it as the leader, yeah, that's fine. But if you're just an HR officer, you can actually do that. Like right. you can start looking at the data, even if your boss doesn't tell you to. What, what's going on here? Why is it that these people here I know are Black because I can tell from their name, their cultural names, or I can tell from where their geography is? Why didn't we consider them? Can I introduce a tool to people when they're hiring that teaches them about bias before they hire? Like, you don't need your president to do that or your CEO to tell you to do that. You can use your personal power to rewrite the rules. And I use this very small because... Small example, because I think that we think we got to have lots of like authoritative and institutional heft to be able to do things differently. And we all can do it. Rewrite the rules on your in your block club, in your neighborhood association. How are you going to show up if somebody calls because somebody some black kid is riding their bike down the street? Do you rewrite the rules there? Or do you pass it off? Do you say like, if you're in the neighborhood association and you do this, we're going to find you mm -hmm. for being well, I think about the number of white people that I've been with in meetings and something gets said or done in a meeting. I might speak up or I might make a face. And then on break, they'll come and say, can you believe it? Yeah. But I'm just like your opportunity passed for you to actually say that that wasn't acceptable. Yeah. What I always say is we don't need allies in the closet. I'm out the closet. Like say it then say it in the middle of the moment, like commiserating with me after the fact about how something is terrible is not useful to me. Mm -mm. It's actually more painful. Agree. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Thank you.
And that's Tanya Allen and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. If you like this episode, have a suggestion or have questions to ask for our upcoming new guest, please follow Shonda on Instagram at Shonda S. Baker. Thank you to Sarah Gillen, John Coco, Darlin Benjamin, and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. This is Sue Pak Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.